0: This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores.
1: This is Amy Trask, and you are listening to Ira
2: and Clark on the iTest for Tip.
0: Well, welcome to another edition of this week's I Test for Two podcast. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we are both Hall of Fame voters, as I hope you know by now. And we're joined, as we always are, by our Hall of Fame producer, Mr. Ian Glendon. But we're also, also honored to be joined by another Hall of Fame guest. And that's Mr. Dick Stockton, who, after 55 years of broadcasting, last week announced his retirement now i know most of you know that his most famous call was the 12th inning home run by carlton fisk in game six of the 1975 world series and you do not know that because you were born in what year 86, 86. <laughs> a little Sorry. bit before our time <laughs> but what some of you may not know is that dick made play-by-play calls in more than 1500 games during a career that spanned the nfl major league baseball the nba nhl college games the olympics and included fox cbs nbc i think tbs too i'm not sure Turner broadcast and, and there were few our, there were few that did it better dick was a, a paragon of excellence in the broadcast game and, and dick i can't thank you so much for joining us
2: Well, it's great to be on with you. Uh, You know, a a great, renowned uh, interviewer, Clark and Ira, who's been tremendous in a fixture uh, in in Tampa. And I see him uh, every week. I have had Tampa games, uh, you know, at Tampa Bay. And usually I make sure I I dine on the great food they have at the press room. And then I say hello to Ira. I do that first. (laughs) You know, um, Clark, uh, over the years, you
1: know, during that 12-year playoff drought, Dick, the Bucs would play the Lions. You know, both teams are four and seven. And, you know, going into the game, people, at, you know, the Tribune, they used to ask me, hey, who's going to win this week? I said, I don't know who's going to win, but I'm going to see Stockton and Schlereth at about one o'clock on, the, on Sunday
2: afternoon. <laughs>
1: now, Dick, Dick, we do our our uh, we do our research on this show, as you did, as, uh, as a play-by-play man. You are a proud alumnus. Mr. Stockton, Forest Hills High School, class of 1960. Now, here's something that Clark doesn't know and I'm sure you do, Dick. Simon and Garfunkel, class of 1958. Jerry Springer. Wow. Class of 1961. That's not too shabby, Dick. Did you know any of those characters walking around the halls of Forest Hills High School?
2: I'm going to shock you, uh, Ira. Not only did I know Paul Simon, we were waiters at a children's camp together in 1956. And I I didn't know any of those guys when I was growing up. And they were actually in Kew Garden Hills, went to Forest Hills High within a, a few streets of one another. Didn't know them. But there was a children's camp in Bellport, long island and there were only 100 kids at the camp and there were six waiters and paul simon and dick stockton were two of the waiters at that camp and this you led me into a story and you had no idea where this was going to go but paul simon and i used to play tennis we knew each other very well as waiters he was a tremendous athlete i didn't think he wanted people to know that because Hello, darkness. Hello. You know, it was not the style of a guy who was an athlete. He wore tank tops. He was muscular. I even think he had a tryout with the Yankees as a pitcher, a left-handed pitcher. Whoa, and whoa. Paul Simon was a tremendous athlete. And, and what would happen is that we were waiters, and we would serve these kids in the dining hall for dinner. And then once we would clear off the tables, Paul, every once in a while, would come back with his guitar And he would play some songs for the kids. In those days, Simon and Garfunkel were known as Tom and Jerry. right? And they they had a hit. They were about number eight in the New York hit parade. Uh, Hey, School Girl was their number one song. And they emulated the Everly Brothers, who were very big at the time. And they had that chord, now all that stuff. And uh, I saw Paul later on at Wimbledon in the 80s. And I didn't get a chance to get into it. I was going to say, Paul, what have you done since we were waiters at 10? <laughs> you know, uh, Dick, isn't he on the short
1: side for uh, a heck of an athlete? Isn't he a small guy? Yes,
2: yes, uh, yes. He was about five six, five seven, but he was muscular and strong, and he was a tremendous athlete. I mean, I could see it up close in and, and tennis and in baseball, and he did that. So, uh, you know, that's what he was in those days.
1: Dick, you did 55 years worth. You know, I'm I'm 45 years in. I I think I'm an old man, but, you know, I'm looking up to you and I got 10 more years to go, Dick. But, you know, of all the great events, and and I'm going to remind you of one, and I think you're going to agree with me. As far as a sustained series and an event, and I think it's been called the greatest NBA series of all time, Dick, and I'm an old 76er fan. Philly-Boston, 1981, Phil Eastern Conference Final. You're doing the games. Philly's up three games to one. Dick, the last three games, all Boston wins, were decided by a total of five points. Um, is that one of the great events you've ever covered, Dick?
2: That was uh, the top basketball series I've ever covered. Uh, I wasn't the lead broadcaster at the time. I was working with Kevin Lockery. And the other um, final out west was between the Houston Rockets and the Kansas City Omaha Kings. And our lead team at the time was Gary Bender, Bill Russell, and Rick Barry. Kevin Lockery and I were doing the number two game. Why they gave us the Philadelphia-Boston game to this day, Ira, I have no clue because it was the first series since the days of Russell and Chamberlain And it was the revival of that great Boston-Philly rivalry. And we did that series. Why would we be getting that series versus Kansas City, Omaha, and Houston out west? Maybe because they were a later time zone, whatever Mm -hmm. it was. But you are right. And when people ask me, you did all of the – and I started as the lead guy in 1982 and did all the Celtic-Laker games. And, of course, the Philadelphia 76ers played the Lakers – early from 82 and 83 before Boston got in there. Uh, and they said, which of all of those series you did in those eight years, what was number one? I said, My best, the best series that I ever saw and covered was the 81 Eastern Finals. By far, was the best basketball series I'd ever seen and covered. What
1: was it like in the old Boston Garden, Dick, even as a, as a broadcaster? What, what was the atmosphere
2: like in there? Well, it was number one. It was uh, it was electric. It was the crowd was going crazy, but it was hot. There was no air, and uh, that's why the Lakers had to have, you know have IVs some of those games before they came in because they weren't used to uh, you know the the dressing rooms and the locker rooms without any air. It was close, and they had that parquet floor, and there was a certain electricity because the Celtics had won eleven championships out of thirteen years, and the crowd really knew their basketball. And it was just a tremendous scene every time they played.
0: We're with Dick Stockton on the eye test for two. And Dick last week, when you said that you were gonna retire after 55 years, you said it was just time. How did you know it was just time?
2: You just feel it. uh, And I felt it coming on. you know, I love doing games. Physically, I could do games for five more years. That's not the point. I mean, I'm not trying to say, hey, I'm 80 something and I'm doing games. Uh, I just didn't. I felt I didn't need to do the game. And I want a lot of other. I've said many times, Clark, that, you know, doing sports on television was a great thrill. And I was blessed to do so many great events. And uh, but it was something that I did, not who I was. It was it was what I did. It, it wasn't, you know, I was that was it. And if I didn't do that, I had nothing else in life. Dick,
1: um, you and I saw each other so many times at at Ray J uh, over the years. And um, Dick, among your partners for color men were John Lynch and Rondé Barber. Um, And I really think you helped them along the way, Dick, because both of those guys, I thought they got better every year. And I think you were a part of it. What are your memories of working with Lynch
2: and Barber? Well, I mean, uh, Barber was 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 terrific and and Lynch of course remains a very close personal friend to this day. Uh, when I retired uh, we had uh what I did with those people was to let them have the time and the air and not have to fight for airtime to get in their little, you know, segments after plays and to talk. I told them, "Look, I do the who and the what, you do the why and the how. I can't do the why and the how. Just see the football game and tell me what's going on. I'm going to do the play-by-play and I'm going to get out and you carry it from there. I'm not leading you anywhere on a broadcast. I'm not going to tell you what direction you should go in. You just come in with what you do. So when they had the freedom that, because it wasn't about my broadcast and how I was going to look on that. I wanted them to develop. And my goal always was, Ira, to uh, have people say, you know what, I love listening to those guys and the way they went back and forth, but I love John Lynch's comments about this or Rondé Barber's comments about that. And so it worked when I was breaking in all the guys that Fox has from Troy Aikman on down. I really enjoyed doing that. My goal was to make them better.
1: You know, along those lines, Dick, uh, working with different analysts, and some of them, you know, speak their piece and they get out of the way in 30 seconds, and others... You know, you take a Tony Romo. Uh, he likes to talk, Dick, and, he, and he's very smart. Dick, um, how did you tailor
2: your broadcast to depending on which analyst you were working with? Well, yeah. um, I didn't tailor it to anybody. I just wanted them to go. And I think people would rather hear, you know, they have to use the judgment. The analysts have to use their judgment on whether they are rambling or not. You know, you, you can't cut them off. And I think that there's too much talk in television today. Uh, I turn on a game, whether it's football or basketball, and I'm, and I'm listening to, uh, you know, all of these guys just talking. And I think what happens is that you're not listening anymore. I think being concise is the key. You don't have to fill every open second and go back and forth in a conversation. I think you have to stay and, and get out save point get out it doesn't have to be quick but just say what you need to say but don't just come up with other thoughts and ramble and do things like that romo i think is the best going today basically i, I love troy of course because you know i broke him in and he's he's with us and he's terrific
0: with dick stockton on the eye test for two and dick um what's your favorite sport to
2: call and why whatever it is i mean i Uh, You know, Clark, uh, you know, football was the last one I did because that was the thing I just I I cared about at the end because of the drama of a week long build up to the game. Uh, Baseball was the sport that I grew up on. Uh, That was the sport that I love more than anything else. And when I was growing up, the other sports, including pro football, were fillers between seasons. That's what they were. Mm -hmm. They weren't any more than that. Then they got built up as well. Did you have a favorite
0: or most memorable interview? One guy, one uh, woman—the most memorable interview that you can remember—or if someone said, "Who was the favorite guy, the favorite woman that you talked to in your sports career?"
2: Well, you know, Clark, I didn't do—you know—I love interviewing, and I'm going, and hopefully, I'll I'll have a format where I can do some of that as time goes on. But I was the play-by-play announcer, so I didn't do many interviewing, Um, and I uh, had—you know—interviews with with uh, A Rod. And uh, with, with all the people I talked to, Stuart Sink, the golfer. But I, I've never been in a position where I was the guy interviewing somebody. I was calling the game. And I think interviewing would be more fun for me, actually.
1: Now. Dick, I got one more. Thanks so much for your time, Dick. I know you're busy. You're busier now than when you were working. Uh, no.
2: Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Dick, 2003,
1: 2004, 2005. Dick, I believe you worked uh, heavily with the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, broadcast, Dick. So I want to ask you about your relationship with a guy who's known as a curmudgeon He's cantankerous, and that's that's greg Popovich. What's what was your personal relationship with him, and what's he like all, off the court,
2: Dick? Well, I, I uh, you know I did the Spurs for three years, just like I did the Oakland A's for three years. Those were teams that I worked in at certain points of my career, and uh, I think Popovich uh, was it was a, a, a Great, uh, you know, motivator as far as playing defense and having San Antonio when they, and he had, you know, Tim Duncan and and Manu Ginobili and uh, and Tony Parker, and they played defense in a brilliant way. And I thought that, you know, he... he he was a worldly guy, and uh, I really enjoyed Greg Popovich. He was uh, a cut above and He was a different kind of guy, military background, uh, and, and I liked him. He wasn't, you know, he was a curmudgeon, but if you asked a question that was not too smart, he'd look at you and say, what kind of a question is that? And he probably was right.
1: <laughs> was a lot of it a put on uh, Dick when he would look at the guy that's interviewing him and, and say, what are you, crazy? What kind of question that's is that? Right.
2: Was he serious or was he was he putting the guy on? No, no, no. He was serious. Uh, And I'll never forget when I was working with Hubie Brown, uh, Hubie would go up to him before the game, we'd meet with him. And Hubie would say, Greg, you scored 94 points in game one. In game two, you scored 90 points. Are you concerned at all with the offense moving forward? And Greg would look at Hubie and say, Hubie, we're up three games to none. It doesn't matter. That's just the way the games work. We're up three nothing. It doesn't matter. So he would be that way. That was funny. <laughs> hey, Dick,
0: um, I've got a couple last ones. Uh, one, of course, sure. is we all know the fist call is your most memorable one. What in your mind gets the silver medal? What's your second favorite call of all
2: time? You know, I would say the most dramatic NFL game that I personally you know. I did six Super Bowls on the world feed. Okay, and the Super Bowl in New Orleans. You know, that was a dramatic game. And I would say that call was huge. And the last one when the Giants beat the Patriots, David Tyree in that game. Uh, But for Fox, the most exciting game that I had ever covered was the divisional playoff. We believe it was 2003. Uh, That was the most dramatic game that I had ever seen on Fox. And I would say that Dan Jansen's gold medal in speed skating, speed skating, breaking uh, the record in his last opportunity in uh, Norway in in 1994 would have to be one of the top three as well.
0: Yeah, I remember that as well. Um, and the obvious question, what are you going to miss most about,
2: uh, not broadcast broadcasting? I'm going to miss the people I work with. Um, you know, a lot of people have said to me, tell me about all the athletes. I knew Michael Jordan. We were really, we were good friends the time I broadcast and I knew other people, but, uh, it was the people that I worked with who were great players or coaches who now were in the element of broadcasting. You spend the weekend with them and you get to know them. You get to know their personalities on a different basis than just seeing them play. And I'll let Roger on a regular basis at CBS in 1982, already an incredibly successful, successful businessman in Dallas. And we're working together. And we, on a Saturday, seeing the home team and the visiting team, we're in Atlanta, waiting to go see the visiting team when they come in uh, to their hotel. And so we have to grab a quick bite. So we go to McDonald's and there's no seats except where the kids are sitting, where the the kids sit on those little chairs and everything. We go there to grab a burger and there is Roger Staubach with his knees above his head sitting there waiting for his uh, quarter pounder with cheese. And he looks at me and he says, you know, Dick, I don't think I'm going to be doing this very long.
0: <laughs> what? He didn't get a happy meal?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, <not> that day.
0: <laughs> Dick Stockton, thank you so much for joining us. Really been a privilege and a pleasure talking to you. And congratulations on 55 years of Hall of Fame.
2: Clark and Ira, thanks for having me on. Love talking to you. That was thanks. broadcasting thanks, Dick, Dick
0: Stockton and yeah. Ira. I'm old enough to remember that Carlton Fisk call. It was a great one. But some of our listeners might not be. So, Ian, can you dial it up for us? There it
2: goes. A long drive. If it stays fair, home run.
0: Ian, that's what you missed. It was special in the middle of the night, too. I don't know. what, I, what Ira was like midnight or something at or 1230, whatever it was. <laughs> but I remember going, oh, what a game. Oh, what a broadcast. That was tremendous. That, it was great talking to Dick, Ira.
1: You know, 55 years. I mean, that that's something special, Clark. Yeah, it, oh, it, really something special. it really is. It really is. It really
0: is. Uh, 45 years of something special, too, Ira. Thank that's you, my friend. That's Thank you. you. Wait a minute. There's some people cheering for those 45 years. Ira, I think they're cheering about someplace you were, maybe not
1: 45 years ago, but when was it and where were you? Clark, this is a special one and it's just for you. It's just for you. The date, March 23rd, 2003. It was a Sunday. It was Oscar night on TV and the NFL meetings. At the Arizona Biltmore, we're about to begin the following day. My wife and I arrived on that Sunday. We're watching the Oscars at a back door setting with a TV on. And Rich McKay and his wife were in, the, in that little audience and we're watching the Oscars. By the way, the movie Chicago won six awards. Six. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were the big winner. Clark, a, a fine writer named Chris Harry who was working for the Orlando Sentinel at the time. I remember Chris. He tapped me on the shoulder, Clark. And he said, Ira, you better get out here on the patio. I said, what's going on? He says, Gruden's out there and he's trashing McKay. He's trashing him. Clark, this is six weeks after they won the Super Bowl. I go out there and there's a table. And Bruce Allen, I think, was there. Uh, no, no, Alan wasn't there, but 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 um, Tim Ruskell was there and a couple other guys. And what triggered this outburst, Clark, was the Rams had just traded for Kyle Turley, who was a pretty good offensive tackle. Yep. And they gave up a second-round pick to the Saints, and that set Gruden off because he wanted Kyle Turley, and he starts yakking for all to hear. Anybody who was walking by, you know, the Rams GM is working to make them better, and my guy's in there watching the Academy Awards. My guy's in there watching the Academy Awards. That was, and he kept going from there, Clark. And it got worse and worse for about fifteen or twenty minutes. There were a couple of beers in front of Mister Gruden, a couple of refreshments, and he was just killing him. And just to close the story, Clark, you know, I listened to it, and I, and I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. Do I write this? It's in a public setting, but the guys had it a little bit too much to drink. So I waited a day or two and Clark, true story. I see Rick Goslin in the halls of the Arizona Biltmore. And I tell him what happened and that I was a witness. I said, goose, should I write it? And Goslin said to me, Clark, I think it's the greatest line I've ever heard in journalism. He goes, Ira, This is what Blackie Sherrod used to say, write it or read it, (laughs) write it or read it. If you don't write it, somebody's going to scoop you on your own story. And I'll never forget it, Clark. And that was the beginning of the Gruden-McKay rift. And by the end of that season in 03, McKay had hopscotched away to Atlanta. But that's where it started that night in Arizona. So did you write it? Didn't write it, and then almost got scooped. And then the following week, when uh, McKay and Gruden were throwing out the first ball at, at a Rays game at the Rays opener, they were on the mound together throwing out the first ball. And I wrote it that morning, and it was all across the Tampa Tribune. Uh, McKay and Gruden at each other's throats, and here they are, and here they are on the mound sharing, sharing a baseball. I loved it, Clark, but I almost, so-
0: I, I almost blew the story. Well, one last question for you, Ira. When Gruden was saying, you know, their GM is out there making the trade. My guy is in there watching the Academy Awards.
1: Was he talking about McKay or you? <laughs> I was never his guy, Clark, even though we had a good relationship. But, Clark, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I mean, you just don't, you don't hear that every day. You just don't.
0: N- no, you don't. Um, Ira, you do hear this every week. Final thoughts.
1: Do you have any for this week? Well, I think I just gave it to you. but um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know know what, Clark? Here's my final thought. And I disagree with Dick Stockton on this point. And who am I to disagree on a Hall of Fame broadcaster? Clark, I might be the only guy in the world. I'm not enamored with Tony Romo. I'm not enamored with him. Because I I think he talks too much, Clark. And in the words of the mad dog, Chris Russo, You gotta let the game breathe a little, Clark. Yeah, he's great at analyzing and telling you what the next play is, but Hank Stram did that 30 years ago, Clark. Hank Hank Stram did it. Um, I think he talks a little too much for my taste. How are you on Romo? I love him, I love him. You know what
0: I love about him? His enthusiasm. He brings so much enthusiasm to the job. And that first year, he was a step ahead of everyone else when he'd say, look for this, look for that, and boom, it would happen. But, no, I I loved him for the same reason that I love John Madden. John Madden had that enthusiasm, too. Boom, pow, wow, look at this. And it made it worth watching. But uh, I love watching Romo's games. But I'll be honest with you, I love watching Aikman, too. I think Aikman does a good job, too, in a much different way. I think it's as analytical. But
1: uh, I see what you're saying. Well, uh, Clark, you've been known to bring that kind of passion to the eye test for two. You know, no question about it.
0: Yeah, I have. But you know what? No one says, except for Ian, that you and I talk too much, do they? (laughs) and <laughs> hey, we got to thank dick for uh, for a good interview uh, oh, good interview and 55 years of great listening um in half of that which you may have listened to of those 55 <laughs> years anyway that's gonna do it um ira tell them whether you can find you on twitter at i Kaufman 76 clark and you know the drill you can find me at iglen 31 and you can find me at @clarkjudge clark judge TOF and uh, Ian tell people where they can find all of us with one push of the button Of course that is the I test for two on Twitter all letters and no numbers there you go and as usual if we don't hear from you you'll hear from You're us next week right here at IRA. tell them the I the test for two my friend you got it, baby Thanks for listening we'll see you then you'll be the grandest lady in the Easter parade.